BBC News at six, I'm Liz Saul. England's Deputy Chief Medical Officer has warned that the country could be subject to restrictions for the next six months as the UK tries to cope with the coronavirus pandemic. The DHI Podcast with Dom Chambers. Developing health and independence. Since right from the start in early 2020, it rapidly became apparent that coronavirus was going to change our lives. Its impact on all of us and society was immediate and there was little doubt that it would also be long-term. Our lives would be changed forever. But what if our lives already needed changing? How would all these changes happening around us influence that journey of change? We tend to think of COVID-19 in terms of the changes we've had to make to our daily routine. The implications of lockdown, social distancing, the need to isolate the need to be cautionate in all our physical connections with those around us. But as the pandemic struck, there were so many people who were in a process of change. There they were, waiting for the operation in the hospital that had been booked in for months, as an example. But how about all those people who were making changes to their lifestyles and were in a process to change their lives for the better? And of course, then there are those people who know that they need to do that but haven't quite got going yet. This direction of thought is taking us to where we need to be in this particular podcast, which is having a look at the pandemic, its long-term influences, and how that has affected those delivering support services to those in need of them. Support services and early interventions to those with mental health challenges, accommodation issues, and those with drug or alcohol dependency issues. Hello, by the way, I'm Dom Chambers, and this is the DHI Podcast. And in this edition of the programme, we're looking at the effects of the pandemic on the services of DHI, how it managed to continue delivering what it does at the height of lockdown, but also what are the services looking like now, as we continue to live in restrictions and society continues to battle coronavirus in a situation that is now likely to take us well into 2021. This is a big story, and it is one that we need to tell. I can't offer you a magnifying glass into the detail of everything that DHI is doing, but what I'm hoping to achieve here is that we get a really good overview of where DHI and its services are now. Loads of people helping to tell this story, and here are some of the voices coming up in today's podcast. There's a lot of good to be taken from a difficult period, and I think that probably epitomises DHI's approach. We're a solution-focused organisation. What we have really understood is that unless they want to change, then there is nothing that we can do to make them change. Family members are often the forgotten ones where addiction is present in a family. They're the ones that struggle. Supported housing in Bath is one of DHI's kind of core services. Um, It's how DHI started. We managed to reach a significant number of vulnerable residents in Bain. This liver scanner will make a huge difference to people with alcohol and drug injection issues. People talk about coronavirus as kind of the great leveller and say it affects everyone equally, but that's just absolutely not true. Because I was physically dependent on it, then I just couldn't give up by myself. It's actually quite dangerous if you try and give up alcohol, you know, kind of white-knuckling it without getting some professional help. So I went to DHI and, yeah, they saved my life, basically. The voice there of Edwina ending that montage of clips and she has a really powerful story to tell which we'll get to a little bit later. But to get it all underway today, let's hear from Rosie 
who's the Chief Executive Officer for DHI. And I recorded this particular piece of audio with her in June, which was at the height of lockdown. So, inevitably, I was keen to find out how DHI was coping. Well, I'm incredibly proud of how the organisations responded. We've adapted services, so nothing has really closed down. Everything is still running remotely. We're delivering lots of services and a few services we're still delivering face-to-face. So right from week one, staff went home with their list of their clients. They've been ringing them up, delivering one-to-one work. We're still open for new referrals. So we've been doing assessments on the phone and support planning on the phone. So all that one-to-one work goes on and that's been supported by peers of the service. So service users that may be in recovery or been with us a long time who are more stable are also supporting people by doing welfare checks on the phone. The group work programs within the drug and alcohol treatment services, those are all available online and they've been available since about the second week of lockdown where, you know, clients check in and they can do the full program online. We're looking to develop that as well. Uh, We have a Facebook live session every day. So, you know, I think it's been really important through lockdown that people feel part of a community and don't feel isolated. Facebook lives allowed lots of people to sort of touch base with us at 12.30 every day. And we've had all sorts of people contribute to that. So I also think there's something about that wider community supporting our client group that's been really heartwarming. So we've had everything from yoga sessions to talks about universal credit, bird watching. We've had just such an array of interesting subjects that allow people to touch base. Uh, Needle exchange services are still happening, but obviously they're being done remotely by taking services out to people. We're delivering instead of having people come in. Shared care is going ahead remotely. Then there are a few services where we're delivering more. So uh, homeless outreach is actually has actually increased the amount of work that it's doing. It's doing more outreach work. And certainly in Bath and Northeast Somerset, there was some excellent work very early on where DHI, as part of a brilliant partnership, worked really hard. They got 40 homeless people into accommodation and not hotel accommodation, which is what's happened in other parts of the country. And a lot of those clients who perhaps are, you know, are familiar to People maybe that walk around Bath as being sort of disengaged and on the streets have come into accommodation and a lot of them are now on a script and there's a real opportunity for change for them, which is just brilliant. Um, We're continuing to adapt as time goes on. So we've actually been reviewing how we've been delivering some of those new services because even beyond COVID, the group programme we have through feedback from some of the clients that have been involved, have discovered that actually there's a preference for some online groups to go forward. People who are socially anxious have sort of said they actually prefer some of the online groups. People who are working, those who perhaps live in a very remote, isolated area. You know, there's a lot of good to be taken from a difficult period. And I think that probably epitomizes DHI's approach. You know, we're a solution-focused organization It's not to play down the really difficult time a lot of people are having through COVID, but, you know, we are doing our best for people. And not only those directly sort of maybe with a drug or alcohol problem, also the families and carers of those as well. So people that know DHI know that every year we have a conference 
for people who are affected by somebody else's drug and alcohol use. And this year we'll be running that as an online conference, which people can sign up to. I think that's really vital as well, because if you imagine what it's like for all of us in lockdown, it, it can be quite stressful, whether you're living with your loved ones who are driving you mad or not. But if you're with somebody with a drink or drug problem, that can be doubly difficult. Wow, loads of information in there and plenty for us to unpick, which we're going to get to over the course of the next several minutes. Rosie demonstrating what many of us have known for several years is that she is a leader who really knows her stuff about the organisation she's leading, from the overall vision right the way down to the details of the services they're providing. Let's now pick up on one of those services, the last one that Rosie was talking about there, and that's the family services. We're going to be hearing from Ian and Liz in a moment, but I thought this would be a good point to remind ourselves about this side of what DHI does. Una runs the family service in Bath and North East Somerset and South Gloucestershire. Families who are, are anybody who is living with or affected by somebody else's alcohol or drug use can come to our service. Family members are often the forgotten ones where addiction is present in a family. They're the ones that struggle. They're the ones that live with maybe financial difficulties, emotional difficulties, lots of embarrassment in front of neighbours. If the family are on board, there's far more likely a chance that the whole family will heal. Because if they're dealing with just the person in isolation, and if the family are not on board, um, often you'll have family members who have a lot of anger and resentment and bringing them together is difficult. But if the family is, gets an understanding of what it's like to be an addict, that it's an illness, if they had cancer, you wouldn't be treating them like this. You know, we try and come from that approach. Ian and Liz are a couple who found that they needed support with their adult children. That is both support in how they're coping with what their sons are going through and their desire to help turn around the lives of those sons. I began our conversation by asking Ian how they got involved with DHI. We've always looked for appropriate support services. We found that DHI was the one that was the most appropriate for us because they really understood the issues that our sons were suffering from, basically. A lot of it was out of the sense of frustration and there's a sense of desperation. Uh, We had come to the end of our tether in terms of what we thought that we could do. Uh, It hadn't worked and we thought that we needed fresh input. Um, The frustration also came about from with so many services Uh, You see, you sort of come to a cul-de-sac. So one of the biggest sort of um, cul-de-sacs that we found ourselves in was that if our sons hadn't given permission for services to speak to us, then we were always left in a situation where we could tell them things, but they could never tell us anything. Uh, So working with DHI and working with their family service, we found that we've been able to communicate more and more beneficially because we're talking to people which have got similar problems and we've always found that they are able to sort of shed light and they've got more empathy than just the so-called professionals. 
Liz takes up the narrative. We've known about DHI for a long time. We first became aware of them when our first son was living in Bath. But where I really felt the benefit of them is when our second son was in Vietnam in 2016. He developed a horrendous heroin addiction. We went out to try and get him back. He refused to come. And while we were there, his friend died of an overdose. And um, anyway, from the January 2017 to May 2017, we were in contact with DHI a lot because they were advising us on the best way to support our son in Vietnam and to encourage him to return to the UK, which was very difficult and very stressful. He landed on a Saturday and on the Wednesday we went over and saw Spike at Bath and he would arrange methadone scripts for him which is unheard of to get a methadone script in five days. But because we've been working with them for five months, we were able to arrange this on the Wednesday. And Spike was really a lifesaver during those five months because we just didn't know what to do. This is a complex story, and unfortunately, we don't have time to go into the full details of it. But what we've heard from Liz and Ian so far really illustrates why there is a need for family support services. Interesting, in this case that that support extends right across the globe in advising how to deal with a situation that's on the other side of the world. And part of the complexity of their story is that it's still unfolding. And so I want to wish them and their family well as they continue to try and turn around their lives. But Liz was keen to tell me just how important DHI had been to them. DHI have been very good because they've been doing family support um, we first started seeing Ina again this year in February with the stress of our second son, but she's also been helpful with supporting us with both sons. And during lockdown, um, they've been doing family uh, meetings via Zoom. And for us, we live in a rural area of Baines. Going into Bath is at least a half an hour plus journey. We've got to find parking. So doing things by Zoom for us is really helpful because we might have an hour meeting, but it would take us more than an hour to drive in and out. So doing things from home via Zoom has been a big help. That last point that Liz is making is really important because as the whole country was reeling under the shock of lockdown back in March, it was really impressive how swiftly DHI moved so much of its work to remote supporting via new technology such as Zoom. I remember well the month of March, which started off with the definition of the word Zoom as some kind of childhood memory of your pace of activity. By the end of the month, we had a new verb, didn't we? To Zoom. I'll be Zooming you. Or let's set up a Zoom. As Rosie was saying earlier, at midday every day, there was a Facebook Live session as well. And I loved hearing about some of the details of the topics that emerged out of those sessions. The need to adapt was very clear, and DHI did precisely that. And as Rosie was saying, quite a lot of the new ways of doing things have found additional benefits. We were hearing from Liz there how useful it is to communicate online when you live in a rural location. But just as we're exploring in this podcast how DHI are doing things now, I want to return to something that we've long established in the podcast series so far, and that is the need for early interventions. Much better to engage with somebody at an earlier stage before they need or even get near to 
those support services that sometimes can mean the difference between life and death. Social prescribing is a phenomenon that has pervaded across society. For several years now, there's been an ethos pervading through GP surgeries in the NHS to emphasise the value of prevention before the need of a cure. I wanted to find out more about how social prescribing works in the context of DHI. And I talked to Veronica, who leads this service. Social prescribing is an initiative that supports individuals to improve their well-being by accessing services in the community and um, activities that will meet their needs. Social prescribing is a short-term intervention. We tend to work with our service users for around two to four months. The aim is to put things in place for them to be able to better self-care. The aim of service is to empower individuals and to give them the resources, internal and external resources, to be able to look after themselves better. By internal resources, I mean the confidence, the self-belief, the motivation that they need to make a change in their behavior and engage with services. And by external resources, I refer to the information that we provide to be able to access services. We tend to offer three appointments to our service users. The first appointment is an assessment. It's a holistic assessment where we look at everything that is going on in their lives, from the physical health, the financial well-being, their housing situation, their mental well-being, their relationships, um, their lifestyle. And by looking at all the points that um, around the well-being, we are in a good position to start making plans about what is required to help our service users move forward. So what happens after the first appointment, the social provider will do extensive research around services that will be able to support individuals. During the second appointment, we present the service users with a well-being plan, and uh, we, we look at that in detail and discuss all the suggestions that are in the well-being plan and any barriers that the service user can think of that might make it difficult for them to access the service. And uh, between the second and third appointment, the service user will have a go at trying all the different activities and will feedback to the social provider what worked, didn't work, and what's required, any changes that we need to make to support with their well-being and making sure that the changes that happen during the second and third appointment are sustainable because it's a short-term service. We want to make sure that by the end of the, the time in the service, our clients feel equipped to continue with this journey without the support of the link worker or social prescriber. And there we have it, succinctly explained by Veronica there how social prescribing works at DHI and those three stages starting with the initial assessment, moving on to the creation of a plan, and then the follow-up about how that plan is working out for the service user. Now, when I've asked people about these podcasts, it's often been fed back to me that the value of them is not only hearing from the professionals about their work and the support services that they're engaged with, but it's also the stories of the service users. And we're going to come to one of those, and it's a powerful story, momentarily. But before I leave Veronica, I just wanted to ask, what the implications are to the social prescribing service of lockdown and the needs to operate during a pandemic. 
during the pandemic, we work in a different way. We work closely with GP surgeries, and they provided us with a, a list of shielding patients. So patients that because of their health conditions, they were at higher risk uh, if they were to contract COVID. We worked with approximately 2,500 patients during the first three months of the pandemic, ringing those patients, um, carrying out a welfare check, and also, in some cases, some of the patients need extensive help. So we spent a significant amount of time putting support in place for those patients that needed extra care during that time or, um, or had needs around um, living independently or access to food, medication. So we didn't work in the same way by offering free appointments and doing their well-being plan is more crisis response. But it was uh, very successful and we managed to reach a significant number of vulnerable residents in Bain. Which is such good news and my thanks to Veronica for telling us all about that. And we've reached a really good point when we can see the practical application of the system that Veronica has been describing with one particular service user. Cue the arrival in our podcast now of Edwina and her story, which is very articulate about telling. And to get it underway, I began by asking her how she got involved with DHI. I came to them initially for help with alcohol misuse. I was drinking dependently, as in I couldn't actually stop drinking myself. I needed a medical detox, which they amazingly helped me with. And I spent three months in their dry house, which kind of got me back on my feet again. And I just celebrated a year clean last month. That's absolutely fantastic to hear that. Can I ask you, what was the moment you realised that you wanted to get some help? Oh, crikey. I realised that the alcohol and everything else, just they weren't doing their job in the sense that it was a means to block out all sorts of things for me, feelings, emotions, and it just wasn't doing it anymore. And it was making me ill, and I was, I was just really, really tired of feeling so ill and the alcohol not actually doing anything but because I was physically dependent on it then I just couldn't give up by myself it's actually quite dangerous if you try and give up alcohol you know kind of white knuckling it without getting some professional help so I went to DHI and um, yeah they saved my life basically. When I hear words like that coming straight from the heart. I feel it's such a privilege when people share their stories like Edwina's doing. It's a privilege for me to hear and then to pass it on to a wider audience. And I'm grateful to Edwina for sharing her story. And what we've heard so far takes us rapidly to another key aspect of what DHI is all about. And that is accommodation and its role in the pathway to recovery. We'll find out a little bit more about that in a moment. But for now, I wanted to hear more about Edwina's experience in the dry house. When you first arrive, it's a little bit nerve-wracking, a bit daunting, um, obviously, as with anything new. Um, but you're under medical supervision. You're given a drug called Librium. I, d- I don't know what its actual clinical name is, but I think that's the brand name, which alleviates all of the, the shakes and the, the tremors and the sweat and that kind of thing from the detox you do 
a detox with reducing amounts of the Librium over 10, 12, 14 days, that kind of thing. There are support staff actually in the dry house for 12 hours a day, and then there's an on-call service for the times when they aren't there. And it's communal living, so it's interesting because you've got a whole bunch of adults there that normally have never met each other, all living together, sharing a kitchen. But it's it's a really nice atmosphere because we're all there for exactly the same reasons. We all want to, you know, give up our drug of choice and, and get well. So there's a real help and kind of... Um, I don't know, we kind of hold each other, if you see what I mean. If one of us is feeling a bit down, then somebody else will say, hey, do you want to chat or go out for a walk together? Or It's just a really great atmosphere. Through the words of Edwina here, we can see how vital supported housing has been to her story and how she's managing to turn her life around. 21 years ago, DHI actually started as a way of finding solutions to the housing problems in Bath. And as we're establishing here, it remains absolutely core to what DHI do. Holly Stoner works for Supported Housing, and I began our conversation by asking what her role is. Currently, I oversee two supported housing projects in Bath and then three exempt accommodations across Bath, Mendip and South Somerset. So Supported Housing in Bath is one of DHI's kind of core services, um, it's how DHI started, so that is 17 beds across two houses for people who've got a history of kind of drug and alcohol abuse. And within that, we have two detox beds, so we can have up to people detoxing with us at any one time. And we do that in partnership with AWP, and then people kind of move into the main part of the house. And then normally after a period of time, we'll move on to our second house, which doesn't have staff on site. But yeah, our main house, it's a small team. Um, Everyone has an assigned key worker. And they have regular key work sessions and we have house meetings and it's really about people achieving abstinence and then maintaining that whilst rebuilding other aspects of their lives. Talking to Holly here was a really good opportunity to find out a little bit more about what links homelessness or lack of secure or satisfactory accommodation with mental ill health and dependencies on alcohol or drugs. The majority of people who come to us don't have accommodation and I feel a lot of the feedback we get is that if they hadn't been able to come to us they wouldn't have been able to address their drug and alcohol issues and with that their mental health issues which normally we see those people who have drug and alcohol issues really struggle to access mental health services. There's normally a bit of a battle between treatment and mental health services over the presenting issues if it's due to drug and alcohol use or if it's due to mental health use. So obviously once they're with us, they're not using the drugs or alcohol anymore. So normally the mental health services aren't involved before, so we have to try and get them involved when they're with us. You know, imagine when people are detoxing, we do see an escalation in, in mental health, at least initially. You know, there is normally kind of a reason behind why people are using drugs or alcohol, um, you, know, you know, to cover up normally some trauma or there is normally like a situation that has occurred in the past so normally that comes to the forefront which will then present with mental health difficulties so it is a big challenge that we see with our client group. It is a grim but inevitable reflection as Holly and others in this podcast outline the challenges that we are looking to a future where these challenges are only going to grow and become even more apparent, become even more of a situation that we as a society have to deal with. 
Wouldn't it be lovely if DHI had gone through their 20th anniversary year thinking, well, we've done all this for the last two decades, and that's improved the situation in the areas that we serve. And of course, that is the case, but COVID-19 has arrived to really stir things up. It's a point well made by Joe Raymond, who is the Business Improvement and Development Officer at DHI. One thing that's really important is that we have to not just be thinking about how we support people now and how our services might, might change, but about the needs, the, the massive need that there's going to be afterwards. People talk about coronavirus as, as kind of the great leveller and say it affects everyone equally, but that, that's just absolutely not true. You know, the, the worries and concerns that, that we've got, you know, the things that, that we might be worried about, you know, being able to go to the cinema or the theatre or the gym again or, or see friends. There are more people who will be evicted, who will be made homeless after this. There, there are going to be people who, who will have greater drug debts. or alcohol problems, debts. You know, and, and these things are things that we have to be prepared for in, in terms of the, the, the much bigger demand for our services that, that there inevitably will be when this is done. Alas, there is no question about it that Joe's prediction of an increased need for what DHI do to help meet rising and very significant challenges of our times and whatever those times are going to look like going forward, which is a good point to suggest that we all have a part to play in this. DHI is not some remote support body that's only there for people in acute need of its services. I don't know of a single person in adult life that isn't affected one way or another by the issues that DHI help resolve, whether that is because of our own situation or situations our loved ones, family and friends find themselves in. DHI have identified the need of a very special piece of equipment. Buying it will make a big difference to their ability to help people and to those people who need to turn their lives around. And we're going to help them. We're currently raising £35,000 for a new piece of equipment called a fibroscan. Now, this helps detect liver damage much earlier than a blood test can do. By basing a scanner in our new treatment centre, it will mean that vulnerable people can access treatment in the very heart of Bath without the need to make a hospital visit. For many vulnerable people, navigating the process of getting a hospital appointment in the first place is impossible, and then getting to the hospital may feel like a world away. So currently there is a huge barrier for vulnerable people to access information about their liver health and therefore receive early intervention. So having the liver scanner based at our new treatment centre could be life-transforming and life-saving for many of our clients. The voice of Katie there, who's leading on the fundraising for DHI. In order to gauge the importance of acquiring a liver scanner, I asked Edwina what difference it would have made to her journey. It would be an absolute game-changer. From past experience, I've suffered a couple of heart attacks because of alcohol abuse. So I know that when I was drinking, I wouldn't go to appointments. I wouldn't keep up with my medication properly. The thought of actually having a liver scanner on site where if somebody comes in and they're looking for help, you can instantly tell them, okay, you've got some damage, but it's all right, you know, we can put you on the right path rather than making an appointment up at the RUH, which are, they are fantastic, but you've got to wait a while. You've then, you know, got to, under your own steam, get up there to the RUH, and it could be that on that day you've had a bit too much to drink. 
So you don't want to face other people. So the thought of actually being able to do something instantly on site, it would change people's lives. It really would. How would your journey have been improved uh, by use of that scanner? Oh, just to actually know instantly, okay, this is the damage that you're doing to yourself and have something there concrete that I could actually, you know, physically see a report in front of me saying, this is the damage that you're doing. If you carry on like this, your liver's going to pack up or you're going to, you're not going to be around to see your grandkids reach senior school or grow up. That would really, I think, have opened my, well, I know it would have opened my eyes to the massive damage that alcohol can do. It's all round, mentally and physically. The need of this scanner is firmly established. And Katie's job is to work out how to get the funding together to make the purchase. Now, some of that is going to be about applying to charitable trusts for potential grants and those sorts of conversations. But quite frankly, what will make the difference to this is if the public get involved and take some ownership of the fundraising. So I asked Katie, is there a role for us? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we would love the general public to support this appeal and to help buy this invaluable piece of equipment. Um, Making a donation is so easy. You can just go to the DHI website at dhi-online and click on the donate button on the homepage. And there we have it, a call to action for us all. And best of luck to Katie and DHI with that fundraiser. And I really look forward to coming along with my reporter's microphone when the ribbon is cut on that installed machine. The DHI Podcast with Dom Chambers. Developing health and independence. Our business is nearly done here on this edition of the DHI Podcast, where I've attempted to capture something of the work of DHI in these fast-moving times. There is, of course, a lot more to it than time here has allowed to go into. And if you'd like to know anything more about DHI or are affected by the issues that we're discussing, do go to dhi-online.org.uk. You can follow DHI on the various social medias and do feedback what you think about these podcasts whilst you're about it. This has been the fourth podcast I've been asked to do for the Vision Project and it has been an absolute pleasure to do them and work with DHI. It's an organisation I've long admired and now I've had the opportunity to find out a lot more about it. My thanks to Rosie and her team and all the people who have contributed their stories and their voices to the work here. I've had the most amazing conversations where stories of life-changing circumstances have had a very considerable impact on me and I hope you as well. Which neatly brings me to the last word, which I want to give to Edwina. And I rounded off our conversation by asking her what she thought of DHI. They are just one of the most amazing organisations I think I've ever encountered. We're incredibly lucky here in Bath, Bristol and South Gloucester to actually have them. They're amazingly proactive. They've saved my life, I think, because if I had carried on, I don't know whether I would be sitting here talking to you now. I don't know whether I would still actually be on the planet I'm 53, nearly 54. I've abused alcohol on and off for a lot of years and it's taken its toll. So they have literally saved my life. Literally saved my life. And what are you looking forward to about the future? (laughs) Oh, 
Um, watching my grandkids grow up. Yeah, just spending time with them, I think. It's just the most amazing experience. And also, I'd really like to save up for a beat-up old camper van just so I can take off whenever the mood takes me and have a travel around England because I haven't really travelled around England all that much. So I think that'd be nice. And that's something that I can do because I can drive now.